U.S. Navy History arriving. All right, welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I'm joined with my XO, Steven. Hey there, everyone. So, last we left, we were in the Atlantic Ocean when we had started on the battles. So, we shall continue with that today. Sound good? Sounds great. Let's cast off. Let's get underway. So, first up for today, we have the capture of the HMS Frolic. So, it was a naval battle in the Atlantic on October 18th in 1812. It was between the USS Wasp and the cruiser-class brig sloop H.M. Brig Frolic. So, on September 12th, a convoy of 14 British merchant vessels left the Gulf of Honduras. They were going to Britain, and they were being escorted by the Frolic. On the 16th, about 300 miles north of Bermuda, the convoy encountered a gale and was scattered. The Frolic, she had her rigging damaged, the main yardar was just carried off. And then the next day, the Frolic's crew started making the repairs. And then at the end of the day, when dark had come down, six of the merchant ships had found her and rejoined the convoy. So the Wasp had gotten underway from the Delaware River on the 13th and had run southeast to try to intercept ship sailing between Britain and the West Indies. She had also been slightly damaged by the gale. She lost her jib boom. Now on the 17th at about 2330, the crew spotted a number of sails on the leeward side. Jacob Jones, who commanded the Wasp, decided to keep his distance during the night. And then at dawn, he identified them as the merchantmen with the Frolic between them and the Wasp. But Frolic had also hoisted Spanish ensigns in an attempt to lure the Wasp into range. So here we go with that flag trickery again. Because at this time, Spain was a puppet state for Napoleon, but in this conflict was, in the grand scheme of things, neutral. Right? To the Americans, yes. The Americans wouldn't have thought twice about a Spanish ship. Now, the weather by this time had cleared, but there was still a strong wind making the seas pretty heavy. So both vessels shortened their sails and prepared for battle. Now, both of these ships carried a armament of short-range carronades. So there was really no attempt at maneuvering to gain advantage before the fight. Instead, they decided to close within hail distance, which is about 60 yards, and then they opened fire at about 11.30. Without raising the British colors? More than likely, they realized that they had not fallen for the trick. Ah, uh, I was going to say, like, I'm not the most intimate with the niceties of naval warfare, but I'm pretty sure you're supposed to raise the proper colors before you open fire. More than likely, they did. Okay. Now, for positioning, Wasp was starboard and slightly windward, and the Frolic was to port. The Wasp's crew fired low into the Frolic's hull, and the Frolic's gunners fired high, which was unusual for the Royal Navy, because they wanted to disable the enemy's rigging. 
So as the battle continued, the ships got closer until the American gunners struck the sides of the Frolic with the rammers while they were reloading. Wait, 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 wait. The ramrods? Again? Dang nabbit American cannon crews. No, no, they did not shoot the rammers out of the cannons. They couldn't get the rammers into the cannons because that's how close they were. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, yeah. I first heard you pretty much saying that as, all right, this worked once in uh, the Tripoli conflict. Let's try it again. But it didn't work in the Tripoli battle. I mean, it, we won. Yeah, but they couldn't use that cannon again. <laughs> yes, but for one shot, you have potentially a really cool javelin. Or lots of pieces of javelin. Or lots of pieces. Oh, yeah, or death by a million splinters. Either way, not fun. No. So 22 minutes go by, and the wasp's rigging was very damaged. The uh, main top mast, mizzen top gallant mast, and gaff were all shot away. And almost every brace severed, making the ship unmanageable. But the frolic was even more damaged, and her crew had suffered very heavy casualties. So, since both vessels were incapable of being handled, the Wasp drew slightly ahead of the Frolic, and the Frolic rammed her. The Wasp fired one more raking broadside, and at 11.52, the Americans boarded the Frolic. And they found that every British officer and over half the crew, which was about 90 men, were wounded or dead. The Americans had suffered only 10 casualties. I mean, if every officer is out of commission for the fight, why on earth would you keep on fighting instead of, you know, striking the colors or running up a white flag? You got to understand the chaos of all this cannon fire. All this happened within 22 minutes. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm so used to these engagements lasting a few hours. Yeah, no, this engagement was only like 22 minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense, because even though it's a relatively small ship, in all the chaos of a quick fight, it, it's quite possible that the gun crews probably saw the immediate officer that was supervising them go down wounded, but were unaware that they didn't have anybody in command anymore. Well, they were also within 60 yards when everybody opened fire. So the smoke from these cannonades would also obscure the decks. Guys could probably not even see their hand in front of their face. And it ended with them being so close that they couldn't even reload because they couldn't get their ramrods into the cannons. So the whole fog of war? No, this was the smoke of war. Th th this was literally fog of war, you know, five feet away from your face. You were firing completely blind and deaf and just knew that the enemy ship was in the general direction. Possibly right. five feet away. Yeah, it was not... It was quick, but it was very chaotic and very violent. So, it has been acknowledged that the British crew had fought to the best of their ability with the most bravery one could have. But this also made it very clear that American gunnery was far superior to that of these British sailors. Now, when you say that, because I, I often hear it said that, you know, 
in the Age of Sail. The, uh, the gun crews of the Royal Navy were unparalleled in their speed and accuracy. So, was this pretty much the turning point of the UK realizing, okay, America's gun crews can actually keep up with ours? Or did we have better designed cannons? It was all with training. Okay, okay. Remember, the American Navy has been operating, protecting their merchants with the pirates. Navy's getting all the experience. It's the army that the British still had a hand over because their army had a lot more experience and ours were fighting. Ours were playing cowboys and Indians. <laughs> Literally. Literally, yes. So, and also the British Navy was press ganged. The American Navy was volunteer. That has a lot to do with it as well. So yes, this is around the time where the British superiority on the seas is being put into question and the tide is changing during this conflict. So just before the battle ended, both of the Frolic's masts fell. Now, an American prize crew aborted her and attempted to repair the rigging. But a couple of uh, hours later, a British ship of the line, the HMS Poikters, commanded by a Captain John Bearsford, sailed into view. So since the frolic was still unmanageable, and with Wasp's damaged rigging, they were soon overtaken and surrendered in the face of pretty much impossible odds. Bresford was due to join the fleet that was blockading the American coast, but decided that it was necessary to collect Frolic's convoy and take them to Bermuda, where they had to remain for several days until somebody else could be found to escort the convoy. So Master Commandant Jacob Jones and his crew were soon released by a exchange of prisoners. Jones was then promoted and appointed to command the USS Macedonia, which had been captured from the Royal Navy on the 25th of October. And then he later served as second in command to Commodore Isaac Chauncey on Lake Ontario. You remember Chauncey? Ah, uh, Chauncey. So, unfortunately, Frolic was too heavily damaged. So she was broken up in November of 1813. But the Wasp briefly served in the Royal Navy as the HMS Peacock before she was wrecked in 1814. How was she wrecked? I must know. So she was under Coates' command and disappeared off the Virginia Capes. She was foundered on July 23rd, 1814. That is all I have on her. How the hell do you lose a ship? So I, I don't know. She was sunk somehow. Oh, all right. So, well, that is the end of that one. The next one is the USS United States versus HMS Macedonian. This was a naval battle fought near Madeira on the October 25th between the frigates USS United States, which was commanded by Stephen Decanter, and HMS Macedonian under the command of John Sherman Carden. Fun fact, this was the first British warship to ever be brought into an American harbor. Well, nice. So when the United States declared war on the United Kingdom on the June of 18th, 
the United States, the Frigate Congress, and the Brig Argus joined Commodore John Rogers' squadron at New York City and got underway immediately. They cruised off the East Coast until the end of August. The squadron sailed again on October 8th. This time they went to Boston. So at dawn on October 25th, 500 miles south of the Azores, lookouts on the United States reported seeing a sail about 12 miles to windward. As the ship came over the horizon, Captain Decanter made out the familiar lines of the HMS Macedonian, which was on its way to the West Indies. So, since they recognized each other, both ships ordered general quarters and commenced maneuvering at about 0900. Captain Cardin decided not to risk crossing bows to rake her, and instead he decided to haul closer to the wind, trying to parallel with the United States. Now, Decanter decided to engage the Macedonian from a long range, because his 24-pound cannons would have an advantage over the British 18-pound cannons, and then he would move in for the kill. So, his plan actually worked. The United States began firing at 0920, firing pretty much an inaccurate broadside, just probably because of the distance and they needed to dial in the range. Right, right. This is before you have uh, nice, fancy laser targeting systems and, you know, spotters that have equipment that make computers look woefully slow. Yeah, they didn't have any range finders. So the British, surprisingly, answered immediately and were able to actually bring down a small spar of the United States. Now, Decanter's next broadside was much better aimed. It destroyed Macedonian's mizzen topmast, which let her diver gaff fall and giving the American frigate maneuvering advantage. So the United States decided to position off of Macedonian's quarter and pretty much just riddled the frigate methodically with cannon shot after cannon shot after cannon shot. Then she decided to demand the name of who she was battling and whether or not she wanted to surrender. So three hours later, the British ship was a demasted hulk. The United States closed for yet another broadside, and that is when Cardin struck the ship's colors and surrendered. Her crew has suffered over 100 casualties, which is about a one-third of the crew. Holy crap. While the United States only suffered 12 casualties and had about 100 cannonballs lodged in her hold. <laughs> so because of the range that they were fighting, the United States got off 70 broadsides while the British got off 30. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, even if you aren't as accurate, quantity over quality sometimes. And also because of that, the United States emerged from this battle pretty much unscathed. 
I, I mean, you're gonna need some body work to get those cannonballs out. I'm not sure how the shop's gonna feel about having to pry that out and then patch up the wood. But, you know, you got the government to pay for that. Well, I mean, they didn't penetrate. They're not worried. Yeah, but, I mean, you're gonna get so many side-eyes just driving around with a, a bunch of cannonballs lodged in your side. Hopefully it's the kind of look saying, look, these guys couldn't even hurt us. Don't try us. <laughs> so, after this battle, both of these ships stayed alongside each other for a little over two weeks until the British ship was repaired enough to set sail. So the United States took her to New York Harbor on December 4th, and the spectators who saw this were just cheering. They were so, so happy. So wherever Decanter went, him and his crew were praised and given special gifts from both Congress and the president. You remember who the president was at this time? Uh, Madison, right? Correct, James Madison. Now, the British ship was then purchased by the United States Navy, and she kept her name, only it wasn't HMS anymore, it was USS Macedonian, and then had a very long and honorable career under the American flag, which means they just opened up the flag locker, took down <laughs> the British flag, grabbed the American one that was already sitting in there, and put that up. And that we didn't manage to... Uh play hot potato with this one, unlike the wolf. Yeah. So, the United States was repaired and set sailed again on May 24th, this time accompanied by the USS Macedonian and the Hornet. And on June 1st, all three vessels were driven into New London, Connecticut by a powerful British squadron. And the United States and Macedonian were keeping a blockade there until the end of the war. Now, Decanter, he was actually transferred to the frigate president in 1814. And he took his officers and crew from the United States with him to the, to the new boat. Hornet, meanwhile, managed to slip through the blockade on November 14th and escape to the sea. And that will be the end of this battle. So... Losses in total, American side, seven killed, five wounded. British side, 43 killed, 71 wounded. Yeah, all in all, British down one ship, we're up one. And one has a really cool-looking makeover, apparently. Yeah. All right, next we're going to have the capture of the HMS Java, which actually happened the year before the war started, in 1811. So the Java was a British Royal Navy 38-gun fifth-rate frigate. The British captured her in 1811 in a battle during the Battle of Tamatav. So she was captained by Captain Lambert, who had seen a lot of combat during his career. He was very experienced, well-qualified. And she actually had more crew than she needed at this time because she had just left Portsmouth and I guess they kidnapped too many sailors. <laughs> so a lot of these guys that they took on were not experienced seamen. 
a lot of these guys, this was their very first time being at sea. And they had only practiced gunnery once without shot being loaded into the guns. Not really much of a practice then, is it? No. So the USS Constitution had a very experienced crew. She carried 54 cannons. 24 of them were 24-pound guns and 30 32-pound carronades, as well as two 18-pound bow chasers. Oh, that's a new one. What one on earth is a, a bow chaser? Those are the ones on the bow that would be able to fire on the boat that you're chasing. Ah, that's pretty self-explanatory. Not a drink, then. No, not a drink. So on December 13th, the USS Constitution was sailing from Boston past Cape Verde. She was under the command of William Bainbridge. You know that name. Yep, that certainly rings a bell. And the USS Hornet was accompanying her, which was commanded by James Lawrence. Now, they arrived off the coast of Brazil at St. Salvador. And on the 26th, the Hornet was sent to port to talk with the American Council stationed there. Now, a few days later, at 0900, the Constitution was searching for boats to capture. And then they sighted sails on the horizon. Now, of course, Bainbridge initially did not know what ships these were, but he gave chase. And as they drew as he came closer, he was able to see that the approaching vessels were large and assumed that they were British. So to try to identify these ships, the Constitution hoisted private signal flags at 1130. And the British vessel also hoisted signal flags. But neither ship, of course, was able to make the correct counter signal. <laughs> <laughs> New ship, who dis? Pretty much. So, the Constitution tacked to the wind and made her way from the neutral Portuguese territorial waters with Java giving chase. Now, the next day, at 12.30, Java hoisted her colors and ensign with Constitution hoisting her colors in reply. So, now that they knew who each other was, Java... She had the weather gauge to her advantage and came about to position herself to rake the Constitution. Now, since she was French-built, she was light, which means she was fast, which means she was, more cons she was more maneuverable than the Constitution. She floated like a butterfly but stung like a bee. So, the Constitution fired a shot across her bow as a type of warning shot. So, the Java decided to answer that with a full broadside. <laughs> we hear and acknowledge your warning. Our response, full battery fire. Now, as we stated earlier, Java was, well, because of the experience of her crew and the weight of her broadside, she is badly outmatched here. So, because of the, the experience of Constitution's commander and crew, he did not shorten the sail as was standard practice. 
And they did this because they wanted to reduce strain on the masts, making it less likely to lose a mast when fired upon. Now, by 1400, both ships were heading southeast. The opening phase of the battle, just like all of these battles, is pretty much both ships maneuvering, attempting to get a good position to rake fire upon the other. Now, both of these vessels at this time didn't have much success at this. Bainbridge now decided to match course and opened a broad and opened a broadside about half a mile away. This broadside didn't do any didn't do anything, so he had to come closer to the Java. So the Java fired yet another broadside and destroyed her helm. Oh. This disabled her rudder and actually wounded Bainbridge pretty severely. But he refused to give up command. So both both boats continued with their broadsides on each other until Java had a mass fall over. It fell over on her starboard side and prevented most of her guns on that side from firing. Yeah, that would compromise being able to draw a good target, having a giant, you know, trunk practically, obstructing your view and line of fire. And it also prevented her from coming alongside the Constitution. The guns that did attempt to fire on that starboard side only managed to set that sail on fire. I mean, aside from being annoying and, you know, any asthmatics on board probably getting a bit of an asthma attack from the smoke. That doesn't sound too... Oh, wait, these are wooden ships. Never mind, that sounds bad. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. So, within an hour, after several very close encounters of various rigging areas of the ships getting entangled, the Java's other masts collapsed. And at that point, you're really left with no choice but to surrender. Especially when a sharpshooter in the Constitution's rigging mortally wounds the Captain Lambert. So Lieutenant Chads had to take over. So Bainbridge used this opportunity to get the Constitution away to make, you know, some repairs that needed to be done. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Even though he came out on top in this engagement, this wasn't a decisive victory. This was a, you know, we, we went all 10 rounds. I think the judges are in my favor, but I need to get the heck out of here. Well, he he only backed off for an hour. Oh, That's okay. all the time he really needed to repair. So after repairing, he came back. And remember how the mast and rigging were pretty much just laying on the deck of the Java? Yeah. Well, they had just barely begun starting to try to remove those when they came back. And the Constitution <laughs> immediately took a raking position. So Lieutenant Chad, seeing this, just put out the white flag. He's like, nope, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> and then the Constitution dropped the boat and sent his first Lieutenant Parker to take possession of the Java. So Bainbridge was wearing his red coat that day. Or it could have been a blue coat that was red at the end of it. Ah, that's that's fair. But he definitely wore his brown pants. <laughs> yeah, he, while coming out on top, it was very close. 
So the Java suffered 22 men killed, which included the Captain Lambert, and 102 wounded. Constitution, 9 dead and 57 wounded. And Bainbridge was wounded. And then about 4 or 5 of the wounded later died. So, because of this battle, Java was a dismasted hulk and was not able to be salvaged. So Bainbridge removed her helm and installed it on the Constitution. Because remember, <laughs> their hull, their helm got blown away. And then two days later, on New Year's Day, Bainbridge gave the order to set fire to the Java and it blew sky high. Oh, when uh, Bainbridge learned of Captain Lambert's death, he was actually expressed deep sorrow for it because he credited that commander of being very brave and noble. How classy. And then, yeah, yeah. And then about four months later, Lieutenant Chads and the other surviving officers and men of the Java faced the as we know now, customary <laughs> court-martial. But they were all honorably acquitted. Yeah, I mean, if, if half your crew, over half your crew is completely inexperienced, I'm not sure what you were expecting. So you know that the Constitution, this exact ship, is still commissioned in the United States Navy. Mm-hmm. Boston Harbor, if I remember right. Exactly, Boston Harbor. Now, the British, they insist that the helm on the Constitution <laughs> is the one that was salvaged by the Java. But it's not. It was replaced a long time ago in refurbishments and dry dock times. And I highly doubt that there is a nail or piece of wood on that ship that's still original. I mean, the helm certainly is not. No, and it's not the Java helm either. So that's the end of that one. Uh, yeah, that, that one was kind of wild. Um, so, you mentioned sharpshooters. Was it customary for each ship to have a, a handful of guys with muskets in the rigging just taking pot shots at whoever had the fanciest looking cap and a lot of medals on their chest? Yep. Okay. Yeah, remember, a lot of these guys were Marines. Therefore, hand-to-hand fighting, shipboard fighting. Ah, okay, okay. This is where the Marine Corps came from. So they weren't just waiting to board the enemy ship or repel boarders. They were, if they were in a decent range and a target presented itself, yeah, you, you know what, why not? Yeah, exactly. Re remember in other battles that we've covered, they came within musket shot or half musket shot and then started firing muskets or pistols and stuff. Right, right. When I hear marksman, I'm just imagining that like an American that's effectively like the sniper from Team Fortress 2, just sitting up in the crow's nest, just, you know, sipping on a little rum, like, all right, Captain, come on, come on. Get a little closer. There we go. Boom. There. Headshot. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what it is, only, you know, with muskets instead of rifles. So it's like trying to fire a shotgun <laughs> at range. Uh, or, I mean, obviously a smaller, but just trying to tag someone in dodgeball from the opposite end of the gym. Yeah, and these were probably smoothbore 
muskets oh, as yeah, well. Oh, yeah, no. It, so... Yeah, I was going to say, um, War, War of 1812, rifled barrels exist, but they are not widespread. Exactly. Like, uh, in Waterloo, um, I forget if it was Napoleon or the, uh, the British, but one of them had, uh, effectively a platoon of, uh, soldiers that were all issued rifled muskets and then, uh, were able to hold the center for a couple hours just on their own because of that range advantage. And accuracy advantage. Yeah, yeah. 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 So how about we go over one more? Uh, I think we got time. So how about the uh, sinking of the HMS Peacock? Yeah, I mean, if you got more details. <laughs> oh, that's a sinister giggle. <laughs> so this was a naval battle fought off the mouth of the Damara River in Ganya on the 24th of February of 1813 between the USS Hornet and the HMS Peacock. So on October 26, the USS Constitution and Hornet left Boston. The Essex was supposed to go with them, but was unable to because they were still undergoing repairs. Now on December 13th, both of these American ships arrived off of Salvador, which is on the coast of Brazil. And they found the British HMS Bonnie Sidion. So Bainbridge, he was still commanding the Constitution at this time, sent a letter to the captain of the British ship, challenging him to fight the Hornet. When you say he sent a letter, like he knew where they were docked and just... Yeah, Postal Service, send this to this man. Why? Because I hate his guts and I want to sink his ship. Well, they found them. They found the boat and sent a boat with a letter over. Oh, oh, cordial, I suppose? Now, the British captain refused because he was actually carrying a cargo of bullion. So he had gold in them, their holds. Oh. See, I heard bullion, and I was thinking, like, like, broth Bull cubes? Bullion cubes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that. that's what you're concerned about? Okay. No, no. We're talking about gold bullion. Yeah, a little more valuable than soup. Yeah. So, Bainbridge left the Hornet there to blockade him and went south looking for other boats. Eventually, he found the Java. We just went over that. Yep. So, aboard the Hornet, Master Commandant James Lawrence was aware from Portuguese sources that a British ship of the line was on its way. And then on January 24th, HMS Montagu appeared, and Lawrence, well, he retreated. Now, after dark... He reversed course and went north along the South American coast. And then on the 14th, Hornet encountered and captured the British packet brig resolution, which was carrying about $20,000 in gold and silver. By 1812 money or by modern money? 1812 money. 
All right, so in 2022 dollars, that is $432,336.84 in gold. Wow, do you just do that at the top of your head? You're so fast with that conversion. Yes. Yes, I do. So on February 24th, Lawrence chased a British merchant brig into the mouth of the Damara River. And as darkness fell, he noted that a British brig sloop, the HMS Spiegel, was anchored in that river. And another vessel, the Peacock, was approaching from seaward. So Hornet went to windward and gained the advantage of the windward position. Lawrence then tacked, and as Hornet and Peacock passed each other on opposite tacks, they exchanged broadside at half-pistol shot. So I think we came to the conclusion that was about 60 feet. Yeah. Or thir no, 30 feet. Pistol shot was max 60 feet, so yeah. we decided it was 30 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pushing your luck was 20 yards, so optimum range is... You know, there's a reason why 10 paces was the name of the game for duels. Now, even at this extremely close range, the British fire went high. Some of the America's sailors who were in the mastheads were wounded and killed, but the Peacock suffered heavy damage to her hull. The captain of the Peacock, Captain Peak, turned <laughs> down <laughs> turned down Wid to bring his opposite battery to bear. But Lawrence had carried out the exact same maneuver much more quickly. So the starboard bow of the Hornet came up against the stern of the Peacock. From this position the British could the British didn't have any bearings on to the British didn't have any guns to bear on the Hornet. And from this position, Hornet just shattered the Peacock in a near four minutes. Holy crap. That is incredibly fast. Peak of the Peacock was killed, Captain Peak, and his first lieutenant surrendered almost immediately. I, I mean, if your ship is just getting taken apart, board by board practically, yeah, I, I can't hold it against that lieutenant. Amazingly, only five men were killed and 33 wounded on the Peacock. Yeah, somebody had rabbit's feet on him. The Americans, one dead, four wounded. One of them mortally. Most to that first broadside into the rigging from the Peacock. So both vessels anchored. And a American crew, prize crew, went and boarded the Peacock to try and plug the holes that were below the waterline and to also throw the guns overboard to help lighten the brig to, you know, bring the brig up so a lot of the holes wouldn't be under the water anymore. But the Peacock sank quickly. Three Americans and nine British sailors were trapped below deck and drowned. Oh. So, actually, more men died while they were trying to repair the ship than during the battle itself. While, while amusing, that is kind of sad. Yeah. So, the Peacock sank in 33 feet of water, and four of the British sailors saved themselves by climbing the foremast. The top of it is what remained above the water, and then four others escaped to the shore in a boat. So... 
You know, we talked about how the peacock was more lightly armed than the hornet. Yeah, yeah. I recall that being brought up. But the overwhelming defeat was probably more to the poor training and lack of experience of the Peacock's crew. They say that Captain Peak had concentrated more on the appearance of his boat than its fighting efficiency. You know, when you said the name was called the Peacock, I thought, oh, well, someone must just really like the bird like me. And then I hear the captain's name. It's like, okay, well, someone's a little cocky. And then you tell me that, and it's like, ah, and we come full circle. It's actually an incredibly fitting name. Yes. So the survivors of the Peacock were taken aboard the Hornet, where they joined other prisoners from British merchant vessels. So together, the Hornet was now carrying about 277 prisoners. Might be time to pull back into port. That's why they made for Martha's Vineyard which was the nearest point of the American coast, which was not known to be watched by the Royal Navy. Well, but mm -hmm. oh, I was going to say, it's good to know that Provost wasn't the only one who liked to Provost it up in the Navy. Yeah. So the surviving officers of the Peacock testified to the generosity of the Hornet's crew. Even though with 277 additional people, they ran very short from water. So, in other words, they're saying, instead of being well watered, they decided to share it with us so we would all not die. <laughs> so that was the sinking of the HMS Peacock. I was gonna, you wanted to say battle. It wasn't. Well, it was a battle. It was a one-sided battle. It, we were the bullies this time. Let, let's be honest, we were the bullies... No, I wouldn't say we were the bullies. I would say that a well-trained crew versus a poorly trained crew will always be a one-sided battle. That's a fair and better way to put it. How, what I should have said is, it wasn't a battle, it was a black belt versus a green belt. With as many untrained men as they had? No, it was black belt versus white belt. <laughs> Ooh. Just rubbing salt in the wound there. I mean, they've really only got off one effective broadside before they were completely raked bow to stern. I, I mean, if you want to compare it to anything else, you know, we can compare it to target practice. Oh, <laughs> uh, an actual live fire exercise with some fire exchange. But not much. Y yes, but not much. So that is where we're going to leave it for today. How are you feeling there, Steven? Uh, as XO, I'm feeling I might need to bump uh, the appearance of our crew down a little bit in my priorities. I don't want to end up like these two idiots for Boston Peak. Well, anything you wish to add before we pull back in a port? Well, we would love to hear a review from you listeners. The more stars, the better. And we might just read it out loud on the show. You can also reach us on Twitter now. Would you care to share what that Twitter handle is? That is USN History Pod. You can also email us at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. And we wish you fair winds and safe seas. Close. <laughs>
Fairwinds and Following Seas. Ah, Fairwinds and Following Seas. Okay. And we wish you Fairwinds and Following Seas. You know, I just had a thought. Yeah. You know how each branch has a military ball? The Navy ball, the Army ball, etc., right? Yeah. Well, you know, it really just warms my heart that one branch will have be one branch will be having space balls from now on. <laughs> uh, if Mel Brooks does not get an honorary invitation, there's something wrong with the world. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.